A few weeks ago, I shared that my wife and I were expecting our first child. We are pregnant, mostly her, but it's good. And as we're approaching the third trimester, that's where uh, things are bigger and there's a lot of physical changes. And so getting up the stairs is hard, picking things up is hard, sleeping is hard, your back hurts, your hips hurt. But I think it's very important for everyone here to understand that this has also not been easy for me, okay? <laughs> There's, there's actually a phenomenon, it's documented amongst humans and primates, called the Cuvade syndrome. I think it's French for dad bod, but uh, prior to the pregnancy, fathers see changes in their appetite and their sleep schedules, and actually they kind of put on weight, perhaps in preparation for the, the long nights to come, and even once the baby is born for three months after the fact, father's testosterone drops by about 40%, so you're more sleepy, you're less motivated. It's crazy stuff, it's crazy stuff. I say this in jest just to share firsthand what I've been learning, that if you're alive long enough, you'll know very well, that we have dynamic and changing relationships with our bodies. Maybe at some points we're proud of it, at other points we're ashamed of it, or we feel like we're working against it. When I was a teenager, play video games all night, slice a pizza for breakfast in the morning, and you'd go on your day, no problem. Now I drink a glass of water, weird, and my hip is messed up for a week. It's crazy stuff. And it's actually not surprising. God's word talks about this simply as one of the effects, one of the consequences of living in a world where things are twisted and not as they should be. Even the natural world bears witness to the fact that things are good, but things need to be set right. In Genesis 3:15, specifically talking about childbirth, God says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So when my wife is having a hard day, I tell her, this is your fault. This is, this is not on me, this is on you. But to Adam, he says, when you work, it's going to be hard. It's going to feel like the earth is, is fighting against you. By the sweat of your face shall you eat bread. This is what he says to Adam. And it's interesting when you look at a lot of the contentious cultural issues today that we argue about, seem to be butting heads, specifically regarding this topic of what it means to be human. So I have three guilty pleasures in this life. I really like frozen dumplings, gangster rap, I mean gangster rap, and, and I really like watching people argue. I go to protests at campuses downtown, I would go to Queens Park with my dog, it's like bird watching, and just watching people go at it with all the issues of today, hot topics like abortion, euthanasia, gender, gender rights, gender roles, transgenderism, drag shows, drag races, race, racism, all the above, and when, when you watch these people have a, a cool and calm discussion, not at all, it would always seem like they were talking past each other. Both sides held very different assumptions of what it means to be human. And so if I view that being human is this, and my body is this, and these are my rights and my privileges that are afforded to me, then I can do this and this and this, and it's fine. But another person would say, no, no, this is what it means to be human. To be human is this, and this is what's permissible, and this is what it's impermissible. But it's strange that the hottest topics of our cultural debates today are all over what it means to be human. That's kind of my analysis of it. That's the fundamental thing that all these contentious views are built upon today. And that seems to make sense, because if I'm asking the question, what can I do, I first have to answer the question, what am I? What am I, what is this object, and what is the proper way for myself to relate to it? 
Stanley Hauervoss, a contemporary theologian, he said that a moral act cannot be seen as an isolated act, but it involves fundamental opinions about the nature and significance of life itself. So as Christians in the world today, it's valuable for us to study and know what does God's word say about what it means to be human. Because whether you are, you know, getting into the comment fights on YouTube or you're just a parent at home with your kids, these topics are at our doorstep. They're at your kitchen table. We see this in our political discussions. We see this in the news. You see this in the schools. You see these discussions being hashed out in entertainment today. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be made in God's image? Today, we're studying the body. Next week, Pastor Terry will share about the soul. And in the final week, we're going to look at the world today. And it's important for us to study this together. So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 as we look at God's good design for creation. And maybe as a preface before starting, I know that not everyone here today would say that they're a Christian. And maybe not even everyone here today will agree with kind of this orthodox view of biblical anthropology. So even today, if you're presented with some things that strike you, that challenge you, that you might disagree with, I would just invite you to sit with an open-handed posture. I'm not up here trying to persuade anyone. I'm not trying to change your mind. But allow me to at least paint this beautiful picture of God's design before you so at least we understand each other a little bit better. That maybe God's view of humanity and culture and creation isn't one built on hate but built on love. And maybe we can find a common ground and understand each other a little bit more. And for believers in the room today, I'm not trying to just send you home with some ammo so you can go and beat up your friends at a family barbecue tonight or something like that. But this also in us should breed empathy, it should breed joy, and it should breed humility as we're learning about God's great design and how often we fall short of it. But the hope and the life-giving vision that we can find because of Jesus. Because right now, thank you, I appreciate that. I think it's the third time I've ever got an amen at Bayview Glen. So we can make it 10 today. It's besides the point. No, no, save it. I won't beg. I won't beg. Where was I? Our culture is in a moral wasteland. People are hungry for this truth. And in the wasteland, we can cultivate a garden. So that's our hope for us today. So Genesis 1, we're going to get going there. Before we dive into perhaps the biblical picture of what it means to be human, I want to give you a very short summary of what is our contemporary cultural view of what it means to be human today. Whenever we look at some event in the news, you can think of it like a volcanic explosion of either celebration or outrage. Look, this is amazing. No, this is terrible. And there's back and forth. But volcanoes are the result of tectonic shifts. There are deep... Movements happening at a tectonic level, and these have been happening for centuries in different elements of human culture and study and academia. Let me present just three of these. These are not exhaustive, and neither am I diving deep into these. There's, there's whole books, and these are great things to study. But today, consider the role of science, secularism, and subjectivity in developing our contemporary Western view of what it means to be human, starting with the discipline of science. Science is simply a tool of observation. We look at the data, there's different types of things that can be studied, and we extrapolate the meaning from it. When I look at this, what does this mean? Now, over the last several hundred years, the domain of science and technological innovation has absolutely transformed our ability to manipulate the natural world and to understand the natural world. We're not running around trying to get enough food and trying to stay warm, but we are the most wealthy 
comfortable and powerful people to ever walk the face of the earth. It's very incredible. Now, the temptation is, in learning more about the natural world, early scientists were Christian, and they thought, okay, you know, there's a good God. He made this world. Let's study it. But there's another temptation to study God's world and say, hey, I understand so much about God's world now that I don't really need to use God as a tool to understand the natural world. God seems like an unnecessary hypothesis. I can understand the natural world and explain all natural causes and phenomenon without having to attribute any agency to God himself. So it doesn't seem like the natural world is God's handiwork. I can explain the origins of life without God. I can explain the origins of species without God. There's no fingerprints in the natural world. One of Darwin's central contentions was that Nature does not have design, but he said, no, it's simply the product of time plus matter plus chance. Nature is red and tooth and claw species battling it out over generations and generations, simply the adaptation and survival of the fittest as they propagate these traits that lead to reproductive fitness in this way. That's a crash course of it. So if the world is not saturated with God's design, then we can't look to the natural world to draw any moral principles. It doesn't seem to be saturated with any goodness or wrongness. It's simply stuff. It's matter that we can understand and we can manipulate to our own will. And guess what? If the created world is not God's handiwork, if it's not God's design, then neither am I. I am neither God's design, and I don't need to look at myself and understand any kind of role of stewardship or special status or creation. The world is matter, we are matter, and we can manipulate it as we see fit. That is a contemporary understanding of the natural world based upon developments of science. Here's a chain link. I'll simplify it. Charles Taylor said that the, the cosmos is no longer seen as the embodiment of meaningful order which can define the good for us. Let me break it down to three chain links. If creation is not the handiwork of God, then creation does not reveal God's will. And if creation does not reveal God's will, then creation is morally neutral. It's just stuff. But if creation is morally neutral, then humans can do as they please with creation, ourselves included. There's no norms or forms to study or be respected. That's a crash course on one development of one field of human inquiry that bears upon how we understand ourselves and being human. Second, look at the, the fact of secularism. Secularism itself, consider the following. A thousand years ago, it was functionally impossible to be an atheist. If you were a non-believer of any religious form, you were viewed with suspicion and expected to give an explanation for why you would hold such views. Today, it's inverted. Now, non-belief is the default. And if you are religious, you're kind of viewed with suspicion and you're expected to explain that. You could understand secularism quantitatively, how many people go to religious services or not. You could understand it qualitatively in the legal system, how much is there a separation between a church and a state. But you can also understand it in terms of a culture's social imagination. How do we imagine ourselves in this world? And you can look in art, you can even look at your own heart. What are our default understandings? When I see myself in the world, do I see myself in a world that's saturated with God's presence and his good design? Or is this a world that is cold and empty and void of any real purpose and meaning? I'm not here for a reason. When I die, everything will be over in this way. What is our culture's default view of ourselves, our social imagination? That's a contemporary way that some people measure secularism. What is the backdrop against which a culture imagines itself? And so you can see, well, part of the influence of certain 
developments of scientific theories could lead to the understanding that I am matter, you are matter, there's no real meaning to the matter, but life is cruel, it's cold, it's empty, it's pointless, and the purpose of life is to just amass as much provisional happiness and pleasure as you can, because it's all gonna be over soon in the meantime. You can see that development in the works of existentialist and nihilist philosophers, Jean-Paul Sartre, Frederick Nietzsche, Albert Camus. You can see more development of this later on in the works of Simone de Beauvoir, Judith Butler. But this leads us to our third point, which is ultimately one of subjectivity. This is your philosophical word of the day, subjectivity. This just reveals the subjectivity. This means the inner workings of the self. If we live in a world which is disenchanted, if the natural world doesn't bear God's fingerprints, if our bodies don't bear God's fingerprints, then the real you is inside. One of the most prominent philosophers in this development was the Cartesian rationalist, Rene Descartes. And what did he famously say? Yeah, I think, therefore I am. The cognito ergo sum. He said, I think, therefore that proves my own existence my own destiny. The thing that determines reality is what's in my head. The realest part of you is inside. The outside of you is just a shell. He described humans as a ghost inside of a machine. And this is so secondary. It's part of our cultural imagination. That's why nobody boycotted Avatar when it came out. Avatar is about a dude, goes to a cool planet, his body's kind of inhospitable for it, so he goes into a little pod, plug him into something, and his consciousness is transported into a new body of this big blue creature, and now he can get around the planet, and it's really cool. Why? Because your consciousness is the realest part of you, and your body is just this interchangeable shell, and we could suck out your consciousness in some sci-fi form, plug it into something else, and your life goes on. And that comes so easily to us, because we think, of course, the realest me is in here. The realest me is in here. So, to summarize all this, through various forms of our development, of our human history, the dominating force of understanding ourselves in the Western world would say this, bodies are reduced to biological machines. They give us no clues about who we are or our value. Now that might seem a little confusing because don't we worship our bodies in contemporary culture? We're obsessed with diets and detox and Botox and working out and anti-aging creams and filters on Instagram. But consider the following. In doing so, are we valuing our bodies intrinsically because of some internal property that gives them worth? Or are we valuing them instrumentally because of something they can do for us? Are we twisting it into our own image to serve our own purposes? Or is this something that we celebrate and steward for its own sake? Look at Renaissance art. They celebrated the human form. If you go to an art gallery, you're gonna see some naked people. But they were celebrating the human form. Look at these proportions in its own sake. But today, the body is pornographied. Bodies are stripped and sold for parts like a car, for whatever thing may serve our own amusement. So to summarize it perhaps in one sentence, my body is not really me. It's something which I exercise dominion over, and there is no cosmic plan or force speaking into my decisions. So now look at the contemporary issues of today when we're making these decisions about all these elements of life and what can I do, what can I not do. I think we have a low view of the body because how much of a say does the body have in determining your identity, who you really are, your gender identity? 
Does it have a lot of say or very low say? Or in determining the permissibility of sexual behavior, does the design of your body have any say in that? Or is it simply an expendable tool because the real you is inside? Or when you look at euthanasia or abortion, how much does the senior citizen or the terminally ill or the child inside the womb have a say because of the value of the body? Or are there other things? Even in the conversations that we have, is that something that's taken into consideration? And I'm not weighing in on those right now, but you can see we have a low view of the body. It's something expendable that's not really you in this way. Now let's compare that and contrast it now to what we see in God's word. What is his picture of creation in our bodies themselves? Starting in Genesis, we see first that God made this world on purpose and out of love. It was the overflow of the love that exists within the Trinity. He didn't make it because he was lonely or bored or looking for a compliment. But in Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you see in the next chapters, God creating all of the things in the world. He made the land and the oceans. He made the vegetation, the sun and the moon, sea animals, land creatures. And after every act of creation, there's a refrain. It says, God saw it and it was good. The all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God of the universe made this world, looked at it, and was pleased. He didn't say, oh, I nailed the dolphins, but chihuahuas, I don't know about those. You know, I think they're part of the fall. That's my, that's my hot take. But God made these things, and he was pleased with it. The psalmist says in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And we feel this. That's why we're so obsessed with being in nature and seeing the natural world. We're not as secular as we think. We see this and there's something in our hearts that resonate. You go downtown, every person my age is dressed like they're about to go hiking. They're always wearing boots and a hiker's hat. But I love in the book of Job, you kind of get God's perspective on the act of creation itself. Job is asking all these questions. Why is the world like this? Why is the world like this? And he says, okay, you want to talk like men? He says, gird your loins and prepare yourself like a man. And then he lays one of the most brutal smackdowns in history. Hallelujah. Let's read this. Job 38. God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Sarcasm is in the Bible. It's biblical. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. Look at that language. That's maternal language for how God views creation. And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Later on, God talks about the, the beasts of the ocean and the monsters of the land and how he plays with them like they're puppies. But God made this and he delights in it. This was very countercultural in the early church. In the early church, ancient Greece, it was dominated by many world-denying philosophies. There was Manichaeism. It's kind of what Augustine was first in, and then he got converted to Christianity. Funky offshoots of Platonism between the spiritual realm and this earth and the forms and the body and the shadows of the cave. But also Gnosticism. Gnosticism just means secret language. And Gnosticism held that creation was actually the fall. That humanity li lived as these disembodied spirits and some evil sub-deity 
made creation, humanity fell into it, and the natural world is bad and evil, and you're trying to escape the constraints of the body. And Christianity counterculturally said creation is good. It was made by a loving God on purpose out of the overflow of his love, and he sent his son and was embodied, scandalous, and he died, defeated death, and was resurrected in a body. So he conquered the evil of the world, but was still embodied, and he ascended to heaven in a body. Very countercultural. The phrase of the Gnostics to summarize this, they would say, the soma is a sema. Soma means body, sema means tomb. The body is a tomb. And today too for the church, we're proclaiming the goodness of God's creation and design in a world that has a low view of humanity itself. Second, we see that God made humanity in his image and in his likeness. In Genesis 1, 28, pardon me, 26 to 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have domain over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Except chihuahuas. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you think of a temple... Two Good Fridays ago, I touched on this. In a temple, a temple is where God's place and our place overlap. It's where a temple is. And in any temple, there's always a representative of the deity. There's an icon or a figure or a statue. And when God made the world, he made a temple. He made a garden. The word paradise means a walled garden. And a garden is a place where the natural world thrives under humanity's cultivation. So God made a garden where the natural world was thriving. He put Adam and Eve in it as the icons, as the representatives of himself. And he said, look at the natural world in this goodness. I want you two to go and make the rest of the world look like this. Go show the cultivation and thriving of the created world as my emissaries. He sent them in. We were made in God's image. The temptation now is to think that we are not made in God's image and not to make the world in God's image, but to make the world in our image. That's our temptation now. That's why in the Ten Commandments, God said, do not make an image of my likeness. Why? Because he already did. That we are God's visual representation of his invisible attributes on earth. Which leads us to the fact that humans are a body-soul composite. We are a composite of a body and a soul. It's not that you are a soul with a body or that you're just a body with no soul, but you are both of these things together. God could have made us just as these spiritual beings floating around in heaven with cherubs playing a cello on the clouds, but he made us with a body in this way. Even the psalmist describes humans like this. In Hebrew poetry, it uses parallelism. There'll be a phrase that's introduced and the next line develops it or contrasts it. Psalm 63.1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And we talk like this. When you're hungry, you say, I'm hungry. You don't say, oh, my body is hungry. When you eat, say, I am eating. If somebody beat me up, I would say, I was assaulted. I feel like my very person was assaulted. It's not just, oh, you know, look at these broken bones. Wow, it's just a flesh wound. No, I have been hurt. And it hurts my soul in this way because I am both sides of the same thing. Interesting, I know, I'll get to that later. This leads us to the point then that if we are embodied and we do bear God's image, this leads us to the conclusion that what you do with your body 
matters. Why? Thank you. I'm at four now. <laughs> because your body is one of the ways that we show God's image. Your body is essential to your image-bearing status. In Psalm 139, I'm sure you're familiar with this verse, the psalmist is reflecting on his body and he says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. Think of the image of knitting, how conscious that is. Every strand, every fiber, and that God made you with a purpose and a design to bear his image. The body is essential to our image-bearing status because it's how God makes the invisible visible. Consider the following. If God is love, we say God is love. We don't predicate love to him. It's not like I'm putting a sticker. If I say you are loving, I'm putting a predicate on you. But when we say God is love, that's literally who he is. He is love. He is goodness. He is truth. He is beauty itself. Now, if God is love and we are made in his image, then lovingness, being loving, it's part of the core of our identity. And even in the descriptions of being human in Genesis, we see the descriptions move from the physical to the relational. God made them male and female. That's your biological sex. And from that flows the expression of this socially, that's your gender, man and woman. And from this flows the unique roles that they bring to marriage as husband and wife. And from the overflow of the love that they share come the roles of mother and father. And one day, if you're lucky, grandmother and grandfather. Some of you have been praying for that. The Lord hears your prayers a little bit longer. Keep waiting. <laughs> and this is, if you think of one of the most foundational elements to life itself, how life comes forth and just these action of these bodies that our culture wants to trivialize and denigrate and lower, God's word says that this is actually one of the greatest ways that we can see how God relates to his people, this mystery. How does an infinite God on high, perfect in his knowledge and his power and his goodness, how does he relate to us, these physical creatures, so weak, so limited, and so flawed? How can God relate to his people? And in Ephesians 5, Paul says that this image of life itself with our bodies is how God reveals it. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And now he quotes Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. How does God relate to us? Well, look how Jesus left his father and came to earth, and then he left his biological mother, and he gave up his body in this sacrificial act of self-giving. And in this giving of himself and his body, now we, the bride, can be united with him because of what he did. And in this union comes forth new life. Literally, we are born again. That's the language that the Bible uses. And so too, when a man and woman come together, they leave their mother and father. They give themselves to each other in this act of self-giving. And from this union comes forth new life. That at the foundation 
of life on earth itself in our bodies, we see a representation and a beautiful picture of how God relates to us. This is a mystery revealed with our bodies. So what you do with your body matters because your body matters. Your body matters. Therefore, what we do with it is important as well. And ultimately, I'll close with this point. Jesus came to restore our souls and our bodies. Because we can say these are good things, but I feel that things aren't all that they should be. I wrestle with my body. Sometimes it, it, it does things that I don't want it to, or, or I feel pulled in this direction, but I don't know if this is right for me or not. It seems like I'm, I'm waging a war with it, and I know it's good, but it's hard. When God describes what's going to happen in the future... He talks about the restoration of all things. You only restore something if it's good. No one restores furniture if it's ugly. But it's, hey, it's beautiful and it's got some imperfections, but I'm going to fix it. God made us in the natural world as good and it's twisted and marred by sin. And he will come to redeem all things. He's not going to take us away, nuke the earth, and we're going to chill on the clouds for eternity. But it says in God's word that he's going to come back. He's going to redeem all of the world and ourselves and our eternal bodies in this way. When Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who had passed away, it always confused me because it said Jesus came, he saw that Lazarus died, and he wept. And then two verses later, he brings Lazarus back to life. And I thought, why, why were you so sad if you knew you were going to raise him to life again? But the word that it uses in the Greek is that Jesus came to the tomb and he cried out, and that's the word that is used for horses when they're about to go into battle, when they're rearing to charge, also when they're startled. And Jesus, when he sees death in this world, it hurts him because he knows that death is an intruder upon God's good design, what he made. It's an alien, it's a cancer on God's good creation. And so it breaks his heart, but he knows he's gonna come and defeat it once and for all. Revelation 21 gives us this great final picture. John is talking about a vision that he's receiving from God for the future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Just like it was in the garden. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So as we reflect on this today, do you know that you were made on purpose and with a good design? You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. I don't care what you were told. I don't care what you tell yourself. God made you in the womb, from the division of your cells to your eternal glory, God did it on purpose, out of his love. You're not an accident. The world is not empty. It's not cruel. It's not indifferent to your suffering. It's not void of meeting. But God brought you here, and he will sustain you 
for his glory and for your good in this way. So for the Christian today, where are we telling the truth with our bodies and where are we telling lies? How are we telling the truth about who we are, about who others are, and about who God is? Or where are we failing to tell the truth? And we, we treat people as a means to an end. We treat the world as something with which we can twist and warp and impose our will and form things in our image and not God's image in this way. And for you today, for all of us today that are wrestling with our relationship with our bodies, do you see the beauty of the, the gospel itself, of what God has made and what he will make again? For you today who, who are perhaps stepping into this and exploring this, would you see the glory of what God has done through his son Jesus, how he made you to know him and the great price that was paid for you today? And for us as we go out, let us not be marked as, as people who condemn people. Christ said, I did not come to condemn the world, but I came to make it new. And may we be those who are marked by this. No, not that we club people with the truth, but that we build them up with it and say, hey, I, I, I see this that you're wrestling with right now. And I, guess what? I, I also don't always feel at home in my own skin, my own body. But there's a God who made it. There's a God who loves it. And there's a God who will one day redeem it for his glory. May we be marked by this. We're about to take communion together. We're going to sing a song, and then we'll take the, the Lord's Supper. And when we take communion, we celebrate and we proclaim that Jesus came and his body was broken, battered, bloodied, and bruised so that we could have union with him. And that whenever we eat, whenever we drink to sustain these bodies that God made, we are to remember and proclaim that Christ came, that he has died, and he rose again. So we take this in remembrance of him. During this next song, let's reflect upon the great price that was paid for us and the great future that we have. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this great gift of creation. We confess how we fail to steward it ourselves and others in the world in the ways that you designed, but we do it for our own good, our own glory, and our own purposes. Would you help us to trust you enough with how you say we are and who we are and how we ought to interact with others. Would your spirit be bringing to light and to mind these areas where you want us to grow, where we're not living in all that you have for us? And would we have the faith to respond in trust as we proclaim this great message to the world around us? It's in your name we ask all these things, amen.